Genesis chapter 42. We'll preach to you for a few moments this afternoon about Jacob again, but we're, we're going to focus on a later time period in Jacob's life, and uh, not on Esau, but on Jacob, and on a statement that he makes to his sons. Genesis chapter 42, and we'll begin reading at verse number 29. Genesis chapter 42, verse number 29. Uh, Jacob's sons come to him to tell him, of their dealings in Egypt with a mysterious man that they do not know is actually their brother Joseph. And Joseph has demanded, there's a famine in the land, and these men have gone to uh, Egypt to get grain. And Joseph has put them through the ringer, so to speak. And he is demanding of them uh, that they bring back their youngest brother, Benjamin, as proof that these men are who they say they are. The Bible says in verse 29, They came unto Jacob their father, unto the land of Canaan, and told him all that befell unto them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land spake roughly to us, and took us for spies of the country. We said unto him, We are true men, we are no spies. We be twelve brethren, sons of our father. One is not, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the country, said unto us, Hereby shall I know that ye are true men. Leave one of your brethren here with me and take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother unto me. Then shall I know that ye are no spies, but that ye are true men. So will I deliver you your brother and ye shall traffic in the land. And it came to pass as they emptied their sacks that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. Now that seems uh, maybe not to hit you with the impact that it would have, but remember they've already been accused of being spies And now they find out that the money that they were supposed to have given for the grain that they're carrying is is in their grain sack. And so it could be very easily construed that they had stolen that grain. And when both they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. Jacob, their father, said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not. Ye will take Benjamin away. He says this, all these things are against me. Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons, if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to thee again. And he said, My son shall not go down with you, speaking of Benjamin, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in the which ye go, then shall ye bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the good day of fellowship we've enjoyed. I pray now that these next few moments would be consecrated in our hearts unto you, that we would desire, Lord, to hear from heaven and for your will to be done in us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what has been done and will be done for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we said a moment ago, to understand the impact of this moment in Jacob's life and in Scripture, it would do us well to go back and understand a little bit of what has led up to this moment. Uh, The story really begins when Jacob, who we preached about him and his brother Esau just a little while ago, uh, Jacob is now an old man. Uh, He has born 12 children, uh, two of them by his wife Rachel, 10 uh, by his wife Leah and their respective handmaids. And uh, uh, the Bible tells us that in his old age that Jacob had grown very fond of his son Joseph. And so much so that Joseph showed prefer, Jacob showed preferential treatment 
to Joseph above his brethren. You no doubt have uh, read and are familiar with the story of Joseph's coat of many colors, distinguishing him as a favored child amongst the rest of his brethren. One day Joseph is uh, commissioned by his father Jacob to go out into the field and to check on his brethren. Uh, When he goes out, his brethren, driven with jealousy, conspire that they're going to kill him and no longer have to deal with Joseph and the nuisance that the favor he enjoyed with his father was. And so they take Joseph and they cast him into a pit. Uh, They're getting ready to kill him. And Reuben, who, uh, by the way, stands largely in this story as being sort of on the hook. And the reason for that is because Reuben speaks up, being the eldest child, and he says to his brethren, let's not kill him. Let's not have his blood on our hands. Let's instead do something that's going to benefit us and, and spare his life and not make us blood guilty before God. Let's instead sell him into slavery. And so they do that very thing. They they sell him to some Ishmaelites that are headed down to Egypt. Joseph is taken in captivity down to Egypt, sold into the house of an Egyptian governor by the name of Potiphar. And no doubt you're familiar with the story of how that God's providential hand took Joseph from the prison house to the palace, took him from being a man who was in bondage to being a man uh, who is in power, and elevates him to a place of being the second most powerful man, not just in Egypt, But Egypt was the empire over the world at that time, the second most powerful man in the entire world. The way this transpires is that Pharaoh has a dream. He dreams of uh, seven healthy ears of corn and seven uh, puny ears of corn. We'll say it that way, sickly ears of corn. He also dreams of seven fat cattle and seven skinny cattle. And he's looking for a man to interpret that dream. And so they send word to Joseph. He's a man who's been known to interpret dreams. And he's brought forward and he interprets this dream that Egypt would experience seven years of plenty and seven years of prosperity that would be followed by seven years of famine and seven years of want. Pharaoh's so impressed by this that he makes uh, Joseph sort of an economic administrator over the land of Egypt. And they take and they, they build granaries, they build barns, they store up for seven years, and when the famine comes, they're ready for it. And they then become the storehouse for the whole world. All over the world, wealth was pouring into Egypt as far sojourners and travelers would come and would have to buy grain to take back home. That's what sets the stage for the passage before us. Jacob's sons, ten of them at least, are sent by Jacob to go and to buy grain so that their family can survive this famine. Many years earlier, whenever uh, Jacob's brethren go back, or Jacob's sons go back home, report to their father, uh, their father asks about Joseph. They bring that coat of many colors and it's covered in blood, it's torn, and they tell their father that Joseph is dead, that a wild animal had rent him. So for many long years, most commentators would say about 12 years now, Jacob has been under the impression that his son Joseph is dead. He believes that he was killed, torn by that wild beast, and believes that he is forever lost to him. Whenever Jacob's sons go into Egypt, uh, Joseph immediately recognizing them, but them not recognizing him, he begins to set about a process to bring them to a place of repentance and contrition. One of the things that he does, he knows he needs to spend more time with them to learn what God has done in their life and to let God do this work of repentance. And so one of the things he does, accuse them of being spies. And they, trying to prove that they're not spies, he imprisons Simeon, their brother, 
brother and tells them then to go back home and bring back Benjamin, thereby proving the story that they had told. So think about where Jacob is sitting at this moment in his life. He is an old man. Uh, his oldest son from Rachel, his beloved, is to his mind and heart dead, forever gone. Now, his other son, Simeon, is in prison, and to his knowledge, he will never be released. And now, here comes his other sons, and they're saying, now you need to let us take Benjamin, the baby of the family. The baby of the family is always the most loved, the most cherished, typically the best looking, most talented, charismatic, all those things. And so it was a great ask for them to say, let us take Benjamin. And Jacob, just overwhelmed with the weight of the course that his life has taken, he makes a fascinating statement in verse 36. I want you to notice it with me. Jacob, their father, said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. He says, Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and you will take Benjamin away. Then he says this, All these things are against me. I want to preach to you for a few moments this afternoon on this. A hopeless cry. I would say that there's probably never been a more hopeless cry uttered than what Jacob said in that moment. Jacob is a man who feels devastated in his life. Have you ever felt hopeless? Have you ever felt like everything in life was lining itself up against you? (laughs) Felt like it seemed like all of society and all of life was conspiring to try to thwart your ambitions, your dreams, your hopes, your plans... And just in a moment of discouragement and, and, and being overwhelmed and hopelessness, you just sort of threw your hands up and said, you know what, God, I'm done with it. I'm tired of it. Everything's going against me. Everything's working out wrong. Everything's falling apart. God, I'm just done. All these things, he said, are against me. Now, you may have never been there. I hope you haven't been. I hope you never get there. I mean that sincerely. But I'll tell you, I've been there. Not to the same depth and not to the same pain, no doubt, that Jacob is feeling. But in my own world and in my own way, I've been there. And sooner or later, you walk through this world, you'll probably be there as well. But what do we learn about this statement that Jacob makes? One of the things I find to be common in society today is people just say things. You ever notice that? People just say things, and and it doesn't really matter if it's true or not. It doesn't really matter if there's any substance to it. People just say things. Uh, Our our entire media system in this country is predicated on people just saying things. They'll say, well, a source said. What does that mean? Well, it means a person said a thing. Breaking news, right? A person said a thing. And, you know, uh, oftentimes in our life we have these moments and we allow our perspective of the moment to define how we interact with and experience the pain that we're going through. When I read this passage of Scripture and I look at this hopeless cry, man, there's some things that sting my heart because they sound like things that I've said before. There's some things in this passage that convict my heart because it reminds me of where I truly am. And then there's some things in this passage that comfort my heart. I want you to notice three thoughts and we'll be done this afternoon. Notice, number one, the foundation of his statement. Have you ever met somebody that was overdramatic? Anything that happened in life is just the worst thing absolutely in the world. And uh, you better settle down. You're going to cause a marital problem, you and your wife sitting there, all right? You better make sure who you're directing that towards, amen? I'm the one that's going to cause strife, not him. <laughs> I've met people in life where when something goes wrong, it just all implodes. But, you know, when we look at Jacob's statement, i got to say this honestly, I don't think he's overreacting. 
If you believe what Jacob believed in this moment, I don't think we can honestly say that he's overreacting. To his knowledge, one of his sons is already dead. Another is as good as dead. And another, because I think Jacob understood at his age, if Reuben and Reuben's brethren wanted to take Benjamin, there's probably nothing Jacob could do to stop it. These are not teenage boys. These are grown men with their own families. And if they believe that the well-being of their family is on the line, they're apt to just take Benjamin by force and nothing Jacob can do about it. He literally feels like his family is in shambles, like almost like Job sitting in a pile of ashes. He looks around at everything that seems to have burnt down around him. I would say this, I don't think he's being overdramatic. What are some of the reasons a person might feel this way? Well, think about three things here. You say, preacher, why is he saying this? What's the foundation? What's the substance of his statement? Well, I notice, number one, it's rooted in a past wound. He says this, Joseph is not. It's been 12 years since he held whatever funeral he held over that bloody coat. Twelve years since he's seen his son face to face. Twelve years since he's heard his voice. And to his knowledge, twelve years since Joseph has died. And you know what? He still ain't got over it. There's some things you don't get over. You've often heard this to be true, but when you lose someone dear to you in your life, you don't ever get over it, you just sort of get used to it. And it doesn't become anything that you ever really get to a place that it doesn't hurt anymore. But you get to a place where you're able to shift your focus and it not consume your entire world day by day. But I'll tell you this, if we're not careful, we'll let some of the things we've been through in life define who we are. We'll allow some pain, some wound, some hurt, some heartache that of course it's going to scar us, but it doesn't have to bury us. And we'll allow it to bury us. I'd say this, there's been a lot of people that have wound up where Jacob's wound up because of some past wound in their life. But then I notice not only a past wound, but notice number two, there is a present weight that is contributing to this. He, To his mind, he knows Joseph is dead. To his mind, there is no dispute, there is no debate about that. To his mind, Joseph is long dead and he'll never see him again. But then he says this, Joseph is not... And Simeon is not. Now, he doesn't have any reason to believe that. In fact, to his knowledge, Simeon is alive and well, sitting somewhere under house arrest in the land of Egypt. But I'll tell you what the problem was. This was an anxiety that was weighing upon his mind. He, after having lost one son, thinks to himself, this is exactly how it felt when I lost Joseph. And now here I am back here again. You know, they say when a person, and thankfully my family is not, I had a, I lost a grandfather to, to, to cancer, but my family's not been touched very deeply uh, by cancer. But they say when a person has cancer and they go into remission, that it's sort of oftentimes always after that, it's like a shadow lingering, lingering over. It, it's something that they often will worry about over and over again. And there's people, thank, thank the Lord, there's people going to remission, live the rest of their lives without ever having to battle it again. But I've just, I've heard people that have had cancer talk about how, you know, it's always there. And, and even if you're in remission, even if you're healthy, even if you have no reason to believe it'll come back, it's like it just sort of looms over your shoulder all the time. And can I tell you this? Sometimes, mm, I got, I, I got two things I want to say here. Sometimes we can allow that past wound to stalk us in the terms of present anxiety. 
We can spend all of our life living in fear that what did happen then is going to happen again and begin to reinterpret everything we interact with in life as though it is the harbinger of some repetition, some rerun of some pain that we've been through. But then I would just remind you of this. We'll get to it here in a moment. He's wrong, by the way, about all three of these things. I mean, I'm not giving, I'm not giving the plot away, am I? He's wrong about all three of these things. But can I just remind you of this? Something doesn't have to be true to terrorize you. I'm not going to get super political, but we've learned a lot of that over the past few years, haven't we? A lot of things we were told were not true. Everybody understands that. I don't, I don't say I ain't mad at nobody. I ain't got no chips on my shoulder. But if, if, if you're not willing to accept that, it's because you're just willfully blind to it. Because studies and various things have come out that have showed us that a lot of what we were told was not true. And sadly, there were a lot of people that did get sick and a lot of people died. And that happens all the time and every year. And I'm uninterested in debating, disputing all of that, even though I, I'm probably fairly well equipped to do it. But uh, suffice it to say, we were told that this was civilization-ending experience. This was it. Bodies stacked up like cordwood. And you know what happened? That fear consumed our society and became the defining force behind every economic decision, social decision, political decision, religious decision that people made. I'll tell you something. Something don't have to be true for you to let it terrorize you. And he is dealing with something that is weighing on his heart and on his mind. He's dealing with something that is a fear that he has. I see that it was founded on a past wound and a present weight. But then notice this. He says, and ye will take Benjamin away. Not only a past wound and a present weight, but a prospective worry. Now, again, as we said, he's wrong about all three of these things. But can I just remind you that some of what he's fearful about he does have within his power to prevent. He can tell them no. And in fact, he does in a few moments. But here's what he's done. He's taken his present and he has forfeited it to a fictional future that never comes to pass anyway. One of the things I'm trying to learn as a Christian and in ministry is to not forfeit the joy of the Lord for the fears that Satan peddles. Because you can miss everything God's doing now by being paralyzed at what the devil might do tomorrow. Instead, we need to live in this present moment of what God is doing in our life, rejoicing in it and trusting Him in it. What does the Bible say? Sufficient for a day is the evil thereof. But He's allowing this prospective worry. He's saying, I've lost Joseph. I've lost Simeon. I'm getting ready to lose Benjamin when in fact no such thing was getting ready to take place. I mean, stop and think about it. All his despair is predicated on not only things that are not true, but on things that are not getting ready to happen. How many days of joy have I forfeited worrying about things that would never come to pass? How many times have I allowed my Christian walk to be stagnated and paralyzed and keep me from walking with God because I was fearful of what might happen in the future? We're living in days... Of, of, of industrial level worry. We're living in days where we have to worry about things that I guess we should have been worried about five years ago. We just didn't have sense enough to know we should have been worried about them. And now all of a sudden, man, I mean, I, the, and I don't want to go too deep, but I, I mean, it, it, it's, it's weird the conversations we have to have nowadays. The things we have to worry about. The anxieties that spring up in our heart and in our life. 
And if we're not careful in all of that realism, we'll lose our hope. You say, preacher, are you saying we shouldn't be a realist? No, we shouldn't be a realist. We should be a biblicist. Biblicism is realism through a biblical worldview. It is not unbridled optimism. It's not delusion. It's saying the Bible will frame my worldview. I'm a biblicist. And if we're not careful, we'll let prospective worries rob us of the present joy that God gives us. So I see the foundation of his statement. And I'm going to give him a little credit here. I do not think that he was overreacting. I do, however, think he was completely wrong. I want you to notice, not just the foundation of his statement, notice the falsehood of his statement. You know, it's possible, it's possible for your whole world to be shaped by something that's wrong, that's incorrect. It's amazing how scandalized people are in this day by information and truth. And a lot of that is because we have crafted a society whereby people are insulated away from it. And then when they're faced with it, they don't know how to process it. They did the same thing to Jesus Christ. When truth walked amongst them, they nailed him to a cross. Because they had so warped their perspective of truth, the Word of God being the foundation of truth, that they didn't know what to do when the living Word didn't line up with what they understood to be the written Word. Their concept of the written Word was, 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 was uh, had to do with the, the, the Talmud and had to do with their oral traditions and had to do with a lot of things that had been scabbed on uh, to the 39 books of the Old Testament and did not bear any scriptural identity in any way, shape, fashion, and form. And it wasn't that Christ did not align with what Moses and the prophets said. He said, read them, they testify of me. It was that he didn't allow with what, align with what the rabbis had said and what the, the Talmud had said and, and, and what all the various uh, oral traditions had said. And they couldn't process. And I'll tell you, in your life, it, it's possible for your whole life to be shaped by something that is entirely, abjectly false. I understand, Jacob. I'm not judging him, man. I'm not being cynical. But I'm being truthful when I say he was wrong. What was he wrong about? Well, notice number one, he was wrong about the source of his problems. He says this, Me have ye bereaved of my children. (laughs) He says, you've done this to me. Is that true? Well, let's see what Joseph has to say about it. Genesis 45, verse 5, listen to what Joseph says. He says this to his brethren. He says, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Now, lest you miss it, he says it real plain in verse 8. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, you can argue, you can argue with Joseph if you want. You and him have fist fight when you get to heaven, like he took the last ladle of soup right out from under your nose. But Joseph says, you thought it was you. You wished it was you. But guess what? God was the one that did it. wonder how often we give people credit for things that God does and give God credit for things people do. They said, 
I mean, Jacob, I understand why he says it. I would have said the same thing. He looks at them boys and says, you've done this to me. You've made me a bitter old man. You've stolen my children from me. You've done all these things against me. And yet when that voice comes back from the grave, Joseph looks him in his eyes and says, Daddy, it wasn't them. Yeah, they took the money. Yeah, they bloodied the coat. Yeah, they signed the contract. But there was a providential God over all of those things that was controlling things that were beyond and outside of their control. It's real inconvenient to recognize that God's providential. Because all of a sudden we're going to have to accept accept some things we didn't want to accept. We're going to have to be willing to to cope and, and reconcile with some things that we weren't willing to. And I'll tell you the honest truth. You're not going to begin to heal until you recognize that God was sovereign over all of these things that happened to you. The, the longer you can vilify it and put somebody's face and fingerprint on it other than God, the more that will feed your bitterness, distress, and anxiety and anger. The sooner you recognize God did this. I know they have meant evil. I know they meant ill towards me. I know they may have relished in my hurt and my pain and they may have done... All those things. But it doesn't change the fact that the God that loves me, that died for me, that's guiding me, that's leading me, that cares about me, that God reigns supreme over all of this. Man, he was wrong. He was wrong about the source. Number two, he was wrong about the situation. You couldn't be no more wrong than Jacob was. He says, Joseph is not wrong. Simeon is not wrong. Ye will take Benjamin away. Wrong. In other words, everything he thought was destroying his life was not real. Isn't it something that things that could live only in our mind could so shape our world around us? Sometimes in a moment of despair, I've been guilty of this, I'll say, well, it's everything's so bad. It's this and it's this and it's this and it's this. But hey, listen, I've not heard the end of the matter. Solomon said the end of a matter is better than the beginning of the matter. I haven't seen the end of this thing. I haven't seen what God's going to do through it. I haven't seen what God's going to bring out of it. And woe be it unto me to be so lifted up in pride as to think I've got the lay of the land before God has put the finishing touches on the masterpiece he's painting. He was wrong, man. He was wrong about the situation. Then notice this. He was wrong about the summary of it. He says this. All these things are against me. In fact, he couldn't have had that more wrong. What do we learn later on in Genesis 45? Listen to what Joseph says. He sends a message back to his daddy. He's talking to his brethren and he says this, Haste ye and go up to my father and say unto him, Thus saith thy son Joseph. God, (laughs) I just get blessed when I read that. I mean, you talk about, could you imagine what must, that must have been like a thunderbolt to Jacob's heart when he heard that. Joseph's alive? Twelve years and he's alive? Thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me and tarry not. And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen. You know what wasn't in the land of Goshen? Famine. Dwell in the land of Goshen. And thou shalt be near unto me. You know what Jacob wanted? He missed Joseph. Joseph says, you'll be near unto me. Thou and thy children and thy children's children, and thy flocks, and thy herds, and all that thou hast. And I like this, verse 11. There will I nourish thee 
For yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. Here's the truth. He said, all these things are against me. But in fact, all those things were working for him. All those things were bringing something to pass that was beyond the ability or the intuition of Jacob to coordinate or orchestrate. I wonder how many things I've said are against me that are actually for me. Actually, I've got to admit that if I've ever said anything's against me, I've made that mistake. Because my Bible says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. God doesn't say all things are good. There are some things that are objectively bad. But He says they all work together for good. Anytime I've ever said, God, all these things are against me. They did this against me. They let this happen against me. All these things are said against me. I have always spoken in error when I've said that. Because at the end of the day, a loving providential God that's sitting and reigning above and beyond those things is ensuring that in fact all those things, those things I hate, those things I'm praying will go away, those things I don't understand and those things that are too painful to even face, all those things are working together for good. He was wrong, man. He was flat wrong. He was wrong about the source. It wasn't his sons. It was his God. He was wrong about the situation. They're all dead, he says. And in fact, they're all three alive. And he was getting ready to gain back Joseph as a son. And he was wrong about the summary. They're all against me. No, Jacob, you're wrong. They're not against you. God's working them together for you. But then notice, and I'm done, verse 38. So this conversation is not going well. And Reuben can sense that. So Reuben says to his father, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. If I don't bring Simeon and Benjamin both back, here are my two boys, kill them. I'll leave them as hostage to ensure that I'm telling you the truth. That's not enough for Jacob. Jacob says this in verse 38. He said, my son shall not go down with you. Now, lest we wonder who he's talking about, he says this, for his brother is dead. Remember, Joseph and Benjamin are full brothers. He says, my bro- his brother is dead and he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in the which ye go, then shall ye bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Boy, he missed it. And he almost missed a lot more than by the providential grace of God he wound up missing. I'm saying this, because he yielded to hopelessness, he missed out on so much and he almost missed the point of the whole thing. Hopelessness is dangerous. Hopelessness will rob you of the development of God in your life. When we are so naive as to just attribute things to people's malice, as to just give up and quit trusting God and lay down and quit, when, when we are willing to do as Elijah did, just lay down and God just kill me, that's damaging to us. We think we deserve it because of the hardness that we've gone through. But in fact, we're hurting ourselves through it. He almost didn't let Benjamin go. And it shows me three things. Notice the forfeiture of his statement. Say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, he gave some things up. He missed some things. Tells me this, number one, he missed God's grace in all of this. You know how I know that? Because he wasn't willing to trust God through it. God had 12 years to use the death of Joseph 
as a, as a springboard to minister His grace in Jacob's life. Twelve years that Jacob could have been drawing closer to his God. Twelve years that he could have been growing in grace and knowledge. Twelve years that he could have been, been enjoying sweet, precious fellowship with God, where God, the God of all comfort and the God of consolation, was wrapping His arms around him. And instead, He let bitterness crowd out what God sought to do. Preacher, it's Old Testament. Yeah, I know, but Noah found grace. Jacob could have too. He could have found the grace of God in the midst of this. And he could have found God more sweet, more personal, more close, more precious, and more wise. But instead, he's just a bitter old man. Instead, he's just angry about the loss he's experienced. Paul learned this lesson the right way. Going through personal, physical health problems uh, that Paul had prayed for. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, 8, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. Talking about his malady that he's dealing with, his, his, his health problems. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Adversity is the conduit through which the grace of God is often ministered in our life. It doesn't mean God can't give grace when things aren't hard, but most of the time He gives grace because things are hard. You remember, James talks about this when he talks about resisting the devil and God abasing the proud and exalting the humble. And he says this about a man that is struggling in temptation but is trusting God. He says this, but he, God, he giveth more grace. To preacher, I got the grace of God when I got saved. I know, and you're eternally, everlastingly saved to the uttermost. You still need more grace. You need grace daily in your life. And how does that come? It doesn't come through ease very often. Most of the time, it comes through heartache and pain. And so, he, he missed it, man. He missed the grace. Notice number two, he missed the growth. He had never learned to trust God. And, and I'm careful, man, because I, I hope I'm never where Jacob is. I hope I'm never where a lot of people wound up. I, I, the first funeral I ever preached in my ministry was of a 75-day-old infant. Coffin no bigger than a, than a, than a bread box. And I, you know, we've experienced our own pains and losses, but I've never had to bury a child that I've held in my arms, that I've, that I've looked in their eyes. And I can't imagine the pain that must be. I hope I'm never where Jacob was. So please don't think I say this with any cynicism. But I would merely say this, that in 12 years, he's just as unwilling to trust God with this child as he was to trust God with that child. He never grew in that time. He never developed in that time. You say, preacher, that's unpleasant. I know, but it's life. And God lets these things into our life, not just because He's bored and wanting to see some activity down there on earth. He's trying to grow us and develop us. Peter would talk about our trials and the sufferings of this life, and he'd say, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire. Why do you put gold in the fire to purify it? To purify it. That's the purpose of it, to purify it. God lets trials in our life because He's developing us. He's growing us for His glory. And I'd say this, He missed the grace, He missed the growth, but He almost missed the glory of it all. Here's what would have happened. Had he never sent Benjamin back 
Joseph would have known, number one, that his brethren had not repented because they had abandoned Simeon the way they had abandoned him. There would have been no reconciliation of the family. There would have been no bringing Jacob and the rest of the family down into the land of Egypt. They would have never seen all that God was doing. <laughs> I like this in, in, in Genesis 45, 13. You know, he's, he's, Joseph's given a message to give to his father, to give to Jacob. And he says this, Ye shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that ye have seen, and ye shall haste and bring down my father hither. Boy, you ever, I love juicy moments. You know what I mean? Boy, you talk about a juicy moment. When, when Joseph, the last time they had seen him and known he was Joseph, they was, they was watching him ride off in a slaver's cage. And now he's the most powerful man, one of the most powerful men in the world. And he says, go tell my daddy to come down and see all that God has done. Go down and tell him to come down and see all my glory in Egypt. Watch men bow before me. Watch me wield the scepter. Watch me save the world. All of this, by the way, harkens in a messianic sense to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I just simply say this to make application, man. Jacob would have missed this beautiful tapestry that God was weaving, this amazing painting that God was crafting. He would have, if he had bailed on God, yielded to the hopelessness, refused to cooperate in the activity of faith, if he had refused to let God bring to fruition what God was trying to do, he would have missed everything. Some of y'all, I, I won't do it. It's your story to tell. But some of y'all would have never thought you'd be where you're at now. You had moments in your life you thought it was done. You thought you'd never have happiness. You thought you'd never have joy. You thought you'd never be whole. You thought you'd never have the joy of the Lord in your life. You, you, you thought all that was done. And in that moment of despair, you were tempted to throw in the towel and say, if this is what serving God is, I'm done doing it. Thank God you didn't. Some of you did and God brought you out of it. But thank God that you let God bring to fruition His work in your life you would say, hey, come on and see all my glory in Egypt. See all my glory in my life. See all that God has done. See all that God has brought to pass. But if you're not careful, you'll let hopelessness rob you from the end of the story and keep God from finishing the work that He seeks to do in you. You know, that was part of Israel's problem. You know what God calls Israel in the Old Testament? A cake half-baked. A cake not turned. In other words... It had never made the turn and let God do, let God do the other half of what God was wanting to do. And there's a great many people that their life is a cake, not turned. They got scorched a little bit, the fire got a little too hot, and they gave up on God and refused to allow God to turn them around. And because of that, there's just brokenness in their life where God was weaving this amazing story. I'd say this, man, we all get hopeless. I do. I'm sure you do. But we have a choice whether we yield to that hopelessness or whether we yield that hopelessness to God and let God do something with it that we cannot do. Let's bow together this afternoon. Musician will come play. I've already preached. I'm not going to preach the invitation. Sometimes I do, but I'm not going to do it in this service. If God has spoken to your heart, would you meet Him at the altar? It might be you need to pray for somebody that's hopeless. It might be you feel a little hopeless.
Might be you feel like your situation is a little hopeless. Might be you just want to thank God for taking the hopelessness of your life and making it a wonderful thing. But whatever it is God dealt with you about, would you meet him down here? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.